And you open the door and you step inside. We're inside our hearts. Now imagine your pain is a white wall of healing light. That's right. Your pain, the pain itself, is a white wall of healing light. I don't think so. Released in 1999 to much critical furore, the adaptation of Chuck Palahniuk's novel Fight Club, released in 1996, saw Fincher really once again coming into his own, as here we have a director now who, having established his style both with a string of hits with both the game and Seven shaking off the shadow of the of Alien 3, Fincher now saw it was voiced as this exciting new voice in independent cinema, and certainly Fight Club would be seen as the evolution of that style. Here, Brad Pitt and Edward Norton play a pair of Generation Xs, failed by society in many ways, who find through an underground fight club a new voice and a new lust for life as they embark on a campaign of mischief mayhem and soap all the while drawing in the ignatic marla singer but is there more to this story than the seems i'm elwood i'm kim and you're listening to movies and tea let's take it to the booth And welcome to another edition of Movies and Tea. Tonight we are obviously talking about Fight Club from 1999, greatest movie year ever. And this is probably one of the films which is, when we look at the Fincher's filmography, is probably one of the films which has been most discussed over the years. Um, not only for the fact that it's a film that, when it was initially released, was kind of a a critical and commercial flop however through word of mouth and video distribution became a real cult classic and certainly through re-evaluation had seen many of the media and critics re-evaluate the film and change their opinion of it but tonight we're obviously coming to it through very sort of opposite ends of the spectrum myself being a long-time fan of the film and certainly of its novel um the novelist of its uh, source novel chuck planick um someone I would cite as being one of my big inspirations as a writer along the likes of Hunter S. Thompson and Brett Snellis and perhaps to an extent Catherine Dunn, whereas my friend Kim is coming to this as a first time watcher certainly adding an interesting element to this conversation I believe but um, Kim, I mean opening thoughts on this one, I mean obviously first time watch for yourself and I'm kind of surprised with a film so ingrained in pop culture and, and that that uh, it's one that's obviously not come across your uh, your radar up till now 
I'm not going to lie. Fight Club, I thought was about some kind of fighting or boxing or something, okay? So I had a really different understanding of this before I went in. But obviously, I knew nothing before I went in. Um, And uh, the only thing I realized when I started it was it was really long. Longer than I expected it to be. It was like two hours and 20 minutes, (laughs) which is crazy. Um, uh, But I I, I don't know. Uh, My opening thoughts for this was probably that... I think Fight Club is not really... On some levels, it's my type of movie, but I wasn't in the current mood for it. So I don't have particularly... like I didn't feel like I was going to like this a lot. Man, all the likes. Um, I think like the story itself is good. Uh, the execution is good. Everything technical about it is done really well. And obviously this story's main point is the development of the characters, uh, both Edward Norton and Brad Pitt's character. And it has to be done with so much care to show these two characters. And your main focus is on these two, but you also have all these side people that come in, like, you know, Marla Singer and whatnot. And they come in and and they add a different element to it. And it is really important that I think david fincher took this project because it, it is such a it's so it's so much like his style to do something like this a movie with a twist a movie with such strong characters and a movie that has a darker side about life and finding something more than the routine in your life kind of thing Definitely so. I think this is really a perfect project for Fincher's style. I mean, it once again fits into that larger world uh, sort of idea that uh, we've obviously explored on previous episodes, where when you look at the Fincher's filmography, there's this feeling that all of it can be taking place in the same world, much like The Wire. It's just we're constantly switching focus to different parts of this city or this world, and with Fight Club, it's really one that takes us from sort of the white-collar working hell and right down into the slums of the of the Paper Street uh, soap company. And it's it's one that I think it really perfectly captured the tone of Chuck Planet's novel. And it's big, having read the novel first before I saw the film, I was surprised of how little was actually cut from the book. Uh, there's a few changes here and there, but it's very much a very sort of, you know, page to screen adaptation that Jim Mills has put together. Um, but this is a film I first came to when I was in college, and it was a couple of years after it, it came out. And I think this is sort of like the perfect sort of age where you're sort of that uh, angry young man, angry at the world, and. Uh, and, and and how society sort of views you and the fact that you're just like this uh, little level person who's just constantly being looked down upon by society and Fight Club is takes these ideas that uh, these people that you know, that work as waiters or they push the mail carter could be elevated to something more that they weren't just these lost children of this generation and then and that the idea of them coming back to strike back at the uh, the man, so to speak, as we... I mean, this is a film where we open through a journey through Edward Norse's synapses up the bowel of a gun that happens to be in his teeth as we reach the end game of Project Mayhem. It's uh, 
it it just hit right from the start we hit so many fincher mm-hmm. trademarks um that you can't think of any other director even trying to tackle a film like this much less to put it in such the visual style that we get here yeah of course i mean you you i think one of the main things that was used here was not only kind of like the dark sets but one of the main things that really works for this is the characters talking to the camera a lot like very close-up shots of these characters and they're they're talking to obviously the other person there but they're also talking to the camera and i think those shots are one of the most powerful in the scene and the most impactful and david fincher really captures the perfect moments to use those things to really send the message across in that particular in whichever scene that that's being shot yeah definitely so and i think also the evolution in just technology as a whole mm-hmm. enables the introduction of his one of his now key trademarks of the impossible shot and here he just goes hell for leather with just like what can we do what's the sort of craziest shots we can do so as i said we open with the journey through over norson synapses camera trailing along the barrel of a gun we then have this whole outline of where we are with the mm-hmm. with the plan to blow up these credit card companies so we can now just like zoom straight into the ground and we can zoom into vans and we can go we have a later scenes where we're like going inside edward norton's apartment and we go right into like the gas fixtures and so we can see how his apartment came to blow up um and it's finch i mean finch has always been a visual director but he's all here like a director embracing new technology to really push his vision so much further and i think the fact he was working making music videos making commercials just made that and he was like constantly on top of these new changes whereas other directors they're going to be like spending you know eight ten months working on a film they're not always going to be up to speed and here he was like constantly like well here's all these new techniques how can i incorporate it and certainly impossible shots such a it's just the way he moves with the camera here is just so fascinating to watch and it just really emphasizes and highlights all these different elements of the story which only add to what's happening in so many ways it's just on a visual front this film is just absolutely fascinating to watch visually i I think there's just it's really how he films that thing. It, it's there's so much motion to it, and there's so much. I don't know how. I don't know how to explain it. <laughs> I'm sure as we uh, as we get into the story, I mean, we start highlighting some of these these parts. So, I mean, we're introduced obviously to the narrator as he's at, at the end at the end, and then we flash forward to the start, and here Edward Norton plays the narrator. But at the same time, he's never given a name. We yes. have the fans of the film often refer to him as being Jack, um, but he's also goes by a number of nicknames as like Cornelius, Rupert, and Travis. And basically, he's works at an insurance company and he's a claims adjuster, so he's responsible for deciding whether vehicles should be recalled when they prove to be you know horribly <laughs> fatal to the occupants he's the one who who works the numbers and figures out whether vehicles should be recalled and because of this in many ways he's now suffering from insomnia and it's through some rather questionable advice of a doctor that he 
starts attending support groups so that he would know what real pain is and as a result finds that by attending these support groups even though he doesn't suffer from half the conditions um he finds himself able to to sleep at night and this right from the start is just classic planic this this idea of someone going to initially a testicular support group despite the fact he doesn't have testicular cancer and then hanging around incest survivors and cancer survivors and just this way of being able to cry and have this emotional release and these feelings that are so pent up in him so it's certainly a sort of scene that we haven't seen anyone else certainly try and I was really curious to know for yourself as obviously the uninitiated both to both Planet's work and, and this film how did you feel about someone attending support groups who has no reason to be there? It's very, it's very like on the border of how, like, how do you feel about this? Is it's it's one, it's very weird, but at the same time, you can kind of see the reasoning behind it. Uh, like his, it, it says a lot about his character, I think, and. At the beginning, when you see him do this, it, it becomes kind of, kind of like he's very dependent on it, and there's this feeling of, I don't know. I guess I'm always the type of person that whatever works for you works for you kind of person. <laughs> so I'm I can accept this, but I think that technically it's not right because you're you're feeding off of someone else's pain to make yourself feel better. Yeah. But at the same time, if you think about it now, like once the movie is done and you've seen this whole progression of his character, you can see that there's a lot of, I guess, just this personality that he's hiding, that he's holding back. And this for him, like you said, was not only a release, but at the same time, there's one part in the back that at the end where they talk about fear. And I wonder at some point when I think back to these scenes where whether the fear of death through these people who are in whatever stages of cancer or disease or something that's bringing them down makes him feel better. Be makes him, I don't know, appreciate life a little bit more, even in the mundanity of it that he has to go through every day. And I mean, it's here that in these sort of groups, support groups, there's no sort of like judgment on... on, on releasing your emotions which we're taught as a society that we constantly have to hide our emotions you know especially for men men can't cry and show emotion they've yeah. got to bottle it up inside and i think this is what perfectly has and we see the scene where he meets bob uh here played by meatloaf mm -hmm. and uh, meatloaf with his bitch tits <laughs> because he's a juicer <laughs> he's a juicer who's uh because of the amount of drugs he's taken it's caused his estrogen levels to go up and now he has breasts um the fact he's played by meatloaf is just genius casting and the fact that nobody ever realizes it's meatloaf is even better still and something he's actually very proud of when he, he says uh to people you know oh, i was in fight club and they're like you were in fight club and it's like yeah i, I played bob and they're like oh you were bob <laughs> so he's very proud of that and if you watch the making of you can see him wearing the uh the bob suit and he's just so happy <laughs> but um yeah the it, it's during this this sort of scene that as i said um the whole 
support group scene is actually inspired by uh, something from Plex Life. Long were a lot of these sort of scenes that you see throughout the film. And he was doing volunteer work where he would drive people to support groups. And as he said, it was so cold in Portland that he used to go and sit in the back of the hall and people just assumed he was part of the group. Even And by him not saying stuff, that people did actually assume the worst. Um, so that's how he came to inspire this particular scene. But what we see throughout the course of the film, I mean, obviously what starts off is him initially getting his fix through the support groups, which is in turn sabotaged by the arrival of Marla Singer, a fellow faker, and he finds that he can't cry if there's another faker in the room. And this is in the turn just so wonderfully dark in, its co in comedy, the fact that she's here in a testicular cancer group and as she cites she has more reason to be there because she do he still has his balls <laughs> um, and it's again it's this, this playing with language and just the fact that here we have a script that's not afraid to just like go to some very dark places in terms of like dialogue and, and action it's just what I love so much about this film it's just so it just appeals to my warped sense of humour in so many ways yeah, no, I mean, I could see that. And plus, like, Marla's this really interesting character also because it challenges Edward Norton's character a lot. Uh, where he just... It feels a bit like, you know, obviously it starts off a bit like a rivalry. He sees her as a threat. And he sees her as someone who can potentially reveal that he's a faker. But he doesn't seem to see that it works the other way around. Um, that not only can he be revealed by her just as much as he can reveal her her position as a faker but at the same time you also see his I guess like the desperation that he needs that he needs this group um, these groups at least all these groups that he goes to all these recovery groups and then just like you know when you're when you're fighting over certain things and trying to territory like make give yourself territory they they separate the groups that they're they each get and exchange what they want and whatnot. I mean, Marlissa, I mean, obviously here played by Helena Bonham Carter and one of her career best, it has to be said. Yes, I think, absolutely. Um, here she's, I mean, the fact that she's there in, like a, in a cancer support group smoking, it just really is right from the start just defines you know, what sort of person she is. She does not care. I mean, we see her later stealing um, meals and wheels. Meals because she knows that the people they're supposed to go to are dead, but she hasn't bothered to tell anyone. So she's freeloading off that service. And the fact that she just she's living her own life free of responsibility in many ways. And she's kind of like foreshadows the journey that we see the narrator go on. It's just while they both are on very different paths the sort of the what they're achieving is very much the same in many ways did you think or did you view her as being slightly different i don't know she's she's definitely like she's very different from you mean different from from the from the narrator right like from edward norton i mean she's definitely right from the start she's different from the narrator i mean she's like yeah I mean, I, I mean, she's kind of like this universe's version of the pic Manic Pixie Dream Girl. It's sort yeah. of like, obviously we can't have the traditional one in a Fincher world, so let, what's the most dark and twisted version of that same sort of character we can have and in that we really get Marla Singer? Um, she's 
as I said, she's crass, she smokes, she curses, yeah. and doesn't really give a, a damn about anyone, yet at the same time has this sort of fragility to her where she, for whatever reason, finds herself constantly going back to both the narrator and to uh, later Tyler Durden, so... Yeah, and she forms a very unique uh, love triangle between the three characters. <laughs> I think I think one of the best things about Marla is is like when they talk about it in the beginning in that meeting where she just crosses the street with cars just going and the <laughs> daringness of her character. And then we I, I I don't remember this line exactly, but like they talk about her philosophy of life that that she might die at any moment, but. The tragedy is that she hasn't or something and yeah that's I, just right. find that, I just find that so amazing because that just that type of philosophy of life shows the type of person that she is like she's well aware like it, it's kind of it's kind of depressing and sad that she sees life in that way but at the same time it's that all fearing thing that that edward norton's character lacks now, the first choice for the role of Marla was originally Janine Garofalo, uh, but she turned it down due to the film's sexual content, which we will touch on a bit later. Mm-hmm. At the same time, they also considered Courtney Love, who, in many ways, I can see as a basis for Marla. So I'm not sure it wouldn't be too much of a stretch for her to play the character. And Renona Ryder was also considered as well. Um, the studio were pushing for Reese Witherspoon, but Fincher felt she was too young. And it was really Bonham's uh, kind of performance in the, the film Wings of a Dove that really sort of swung it for her to be cast in, in this role. So I think maybe it's just the fact that uh, much like Tim Burton, she doesn't seem to own a comb. I think we would have... Because she has that crazy hair, which just, like... When I was reading the book and I thought Mother Singer, it's just like, yes, this is perfect for this character. Uh, how how she looks, and there's so little actually done to her appearance. I mean, yes, she, she wears some really outlandish things, and she has that sort of uh, lighter sort of makeup there. But um, just with Bone and Gunner's general appearance, it's just so perfect for the role. Of this uh, character and just her, the way her attitude and general sort of fearlessness that she brings to the role because it's not a sort of role you can half-ass you have to really fully commit to this character voice it's going to come off as being overplayed and um and not have its same sort of presence that you need for this this character yeah but yeah it's really good because she has that perfect amount of drama i'd like to say because in reality, Marla's character is quite dramatic. Like, she's very... There's a lot of things about her that's very just out there. Very loud. But yeah. at the same time, she's also a very quiet character. She keeps a lot to herself and uh, keeps a lot of those feelings and expressions and how she feels and, and all those things. But it never feels over. And you know, I have to say, Helena Bonham Carter, I don't know if I've seen her in a role that's that's been as well balanced as this one i would like to say mm. she was almost enough to convince me to watch the harry potter movies but you know I, then i saw sense <laughs> realized <laughs> that it's what it's gonna be like six movies of emma watson acting i'm gonna have to endure so i thought yeah maybe not well and helena bonham carter and harry potter is only in like the last few she's not in the first few so I know, I suppose I should have viewed it from that respect, but... Um, 
Now, for the role of the narrator, I mean, obviously here we have uh, Edward Norton. Um, originally, the studio were pushing for Matt Damon and Sean Penn, um, but it was the Norton's role in The People vs. Larry Flint that really sort of made him push for Norton to be cast. Now, I hadn't actually seen Edward Norton in anything prior to this, so this is my first uh, sort of taste of Edward Norton acting and I think he's a really interesting actor and certainly when you look at his filmography he's done some very interesting roles over his years I watched this and I watched American History X sort of back to back and those those roles are kind of very polar opposite but um, very sort of powerhouse roles so it was very interesting to see him doing playing the beta male here especially after playing such an obvious alpha male in American History X um, were you a, I mean are you a fan of Edward Norton or where do you sort of stand on his well, I mean, seeing as I watched Fight Club, like, three days ago, it's not really, like, yeah. I've already seen a lot of, I, I've seen a relative good amount of Edward Norton, and I do like his acting quite a bit. Um, obviously, I've seen American History X, and uh, I've seen him in uh, Red Dragon, I've seen him in Illusionist uh, yeah. is one of the bigger movies that I like of his. Uh, I recently saw Incredible Hulk, so I saw him in that. Um, he is Bruce Banner, isn't he? Yes, he is. And then uh, <laughs> I, I saw him in uh, Pride and Glory, the one with Colin Farrell. I mean, okay. I've seen him in quite a bit of things. I just and 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 Grand Grand Budapest Hotel is in that. So there's a good bit of movies that I've seen of him. I, I relatively do like his characters a lot. Uh, this one obviously is like you said. It's it's more toned down. He's more of he has a lot of issues <laughs> for lack of a better word he has a lot of issues um you know there this movie is very very wordy there's a lot of like cryptic talk and philosophical kind of notions that they're trying to put through about the characters and about life and about just everything has a lot of metaphor and a lot of different things that are attached to it uh it's not a bad thing but it's it's, it feels, sometimes it can get a little bit, it's, it gets wordy it, in a very weird way. <laughs> yeah, I mean, this is classic Chuck Palahniuk. I mean, Palahniuk, for his works, is very sort of social satire. He observes the world around him and, and emphasizes its quirks, especially in his early works. So when you look at his books like Fight Club, like Survivor and Invisible Monsters, it's all about highlighting these quirks of society and these often like, posing these questions of uh that you probably wouldn't <laughs> wouldn't even give two seconds thought to yet he fascinates himself over like why do they only hire women to wear the, the costume suits in disney world and these sorts of twisted uh questions he likes to pose himself and certainly this is very much seen throughout fight club i mean the fact that here with the narrator i mean he's living He's a slave to the IKEA lifestyle, as he says. It's mm -hmm. he spends his days leafing through the uh, through the IKEA catalog, trying to figure out what his apartment needs. And I have to admit, um, the amount of times I've been to IKEA and done the exact same thing, and like wonder what dish pattern defines me as a person. Uh, like, <laughs> could I could I make my lounge look as good as the one in IKEA? <laughs> um, it's and you know, and the these musings on like the fact that. You know, in the future, the corporations are going to name everything, and and I have to say, I'll be I'll be down with Planet Starbucks for sure. Um, and the and it's really through 
through this, I mean, this is the life he sort of built up for himself, where he has these. He's kind of he's convinced himself he's happy with this life. He, you know, he's constantly on the road. The people he meets are always single, seven friends, and the introduction of Tyler really shakes this up and it's really a chance encounter that the pair ha have they just happen to be sitting next to each other on the plane and through this sort of chance encounter that they set that the sort of course is set really for the narrator to be shook out of his life I mean right from the start he's sort of like um he, he's given no sort of choice to give up his old life because it's basically blown out of uh, his apartment window because he comes back to find his apartment's been blown up for a gas leak um, forever forcing him to reunite with Tyler and the pair heading off in a very unique direction should we say um, <laughs> so is it when we look at the character of Tyler I mean he's obviously in many ways very sort of polar opposite to the character of the narrator um, and I think it's perfect casting the fact that they went with Brad Pitt for the role I mean they were talking about Russell Crowe taking on the role but I think Pitt is more he's more accessible he's got that every man sort of charm to him yet at the same time embodies what Tyler Durden is he's this kind of mythical ideal man of who you know male viewers in particular could like associate themselves with wanting to be like um and he sort of embodies this and at the same time has this sort of very carefree uh consequence sort of free attitude to the world and kind of in the same way to the narrator he has this very unique philosophies around the world it's just here well the narrators are sort of more rooted in like order and finding completion the philosophies of Tyler are in destruction self-destruction <laughs> causing anarchy <laughs> chaos and disrupting the system basically so it's fascinating the fact that these two people with such polar opposite ideals could somehow be brought together but I mean how do you find the character Tyler from the initial sort of introduction do you find him like too sort of full of himself or do you think that he has that sort of uh, charm to him I think he's charming like at least in, in, in the eyes of in the eyes of the narrator who is kind of like an everyday normal person right he goes through the routine of life the everything that's non is very simple and very just, just too routine and he's a very normal guy who who is struggling to be normal in a certain way. Like, he's he's finding this causing, you know, it's causing him insomnia and stuff like that. And when he meets Tyler, Tyler's this burst of character. It's challenging the things that, that he knows, and it's challenging the personality that he is, and, and just really carefree, kind of the person that he's not. Because Tyler is a person that kind of lets it all go and is just all about the going big and and don't care and whatnot and the narrator isn't like that he he's he's more grounded so brad pipping i have to just say this i mean i didn't know russell crowe was in line for this role but thank goodness it wasn't russell crowe i would not have liked this would have been a different movie experience with russell crowe and probably one that i wouldn't have liked very much um, yeah, because I don't see Russell Crowe having that ability to, that's not saying he's a bad actor, I'm not a big fan of him, but 
Russell Crowe is not a bad actor per se, but at the same time, like this role fits Brad Pitt so much better in what he can achieve with it and the character and just, I don't know, just the natural charm that he can carry and being kind of this somewhat unhinged kind of characters that his character needs to, that Tyler needs to carry through in so many of those scenes in the fight club or, or just being beat up and just that the, you know, as the movie goes along, he kind of really lashes out, right? Mm. So it becomes a pretty intense character and Brad Pitt has that kind of charm, but he can pull off the unhinged and he can pull off that intensity that needs to be done. Whereas, you know, if we had, if they had carried Russell Crowe, I think the only part he would have done was the intensity minus a lot of the charm, um, like the, uh, like the unhinged charm kind of thing. I don't know, like the bad boy. I don't know what you could. Yeah. I think when you look at Russell Crowe, he's kind of like uh, Joe Butler and, um, Cole Urban and the fact yeah, that he, like, he's more this sort of brute yeah he can they can pull off like the rugged feeling but they don't have that same uh Brad Pitt kind of I don't know smooth talker look I guess I don't know smooth talker bad boy I don't know what you call that yeah I think you nailed it right on the head when you say he's a smooth talker because that's basically how he leads the narrator astray if you have someone like uh Russell Crowe it's more because he's so so much of a brute that it would almost seem like he's dominating, he's sort of bullying the narrator into it. And we want, we want instead is someone to lead the narrator astray through this sort of situation that escalates so gradually that he doesn't realise how deep he's in until he's in. And, I mean, this is perfectly seen, seen when we look at the initial sort of fight between the narrator and Tyler in the parking lot of Lou's place. And I think just the fact it's in a bar is so important. I mean this idea that you go to the bar to find a fight and this is what these two guys do they're just having a brawl and they discover this sort of primal release just by fighting each other that they feel has been missing and they decide that you know we're just going to keep doing it and by doing it they find other people who also want to tap into this vibe in turn creating the fight club uh which takes place in the basement and again this is perfect idea that you know you go to the bar to find a fight and that's what they find and the fact that it's in the basement because it's an underground club i think it's perhaps a little literal but lose place is such a perfect grimy place to have this sort of secret club take place and I love the initial sort of meeting when they have in the basement and you have that long pan shot as we go through the bar and we've got the Tom Waits going out west sort of playing in the background and how this group sort of gather. Um, while they're closing at the bar, you see all the members are like coming out and they're, they're all following Tyler because they know, you know, what time it is. And just the I mean, it just it's just so perfectly sort of sets up and again with the fight club the fact that it's a it's not about physical dominance it's not just about seeing who's the toughest who's the strongest it is just this pure therapy if in the most primal sense that these guys are finding for themselves and this is sort of further established when we get into the rules i mean these are guys that the rules say that you know you fight to one person goes limp or they tap out so and there's this self-congratulations between them. It's never like, oh, I bested you. It's sort of like, you know, 
they congratulate each other on just the fight that they've had. And I think it's so fascinating, even though I think it went over the heads of a lot of critics when they saw it, because they just saw, like, these grotesque acts of physical violence that are taking place as guys are basically pacing seven shades out of each other. I think, you know, all all of those... For, for a movie about Fight Club, it's, it, it's really not that much... I don't know. I didn't think it was that much fighting. Um... But then, I mean, I think I got drowned out a little by the time I was... I watched it in a few sittings, so... Might have not felt as much because I did it in so many different sittings. Um, (laughs) But... But, yeah, I mean, the whole underground feeling and this whole fight club being there and that whole iconic scene of just, you know, the first rule of fight club and the second rule of fight club and all that stuff. um, I mean... Everybody knows that, even if you haven't seen the Fight Club movie. <laughs> oh yeah, the, the student walls, which you got that poster, which is like got the rules of Fight Club. I think I even had the the poster, which has got like the Fight Club soap at the bottom. And it's like the rules of Fight Club, and it's the fact that it repeats. You do not talk about Fight Club twice is to like underline the importance of not talking about Fight Club. Yet, obviously, they do because you have fight clubs do leaping up everywhere and it was kind of funny when this film came out i think it went over the heads of a lot of people the fact that it's not just about the fight club um as you had all these like unofficial fight clubs springing up and you read in the paper that this monkey see monkey do attitude where you'd have like young guys like forming secret uh knuckle fight clubs in their school and whatnot to beat the seven shades out of each other so <laughs> Yeah, but the Fight Club is so much more, right? It's like, so Fight Club is meant to be a release, and at the beginning, yeah. at least, it's a, it's about it's about the release of the characters and and just everybody having that equal opportunity of fighting each other, um, and everything in as we move along becomes well. At least it's meant to feel like there's no one who's a leader. Everybody's the same kind of deal, uh, and this all is there to just for everybody it's it kind of builds them a little bit more into tougher characters even even when you see bob who who you know obviously ends up seeing bob at fight club and that's a surprise (laughs) yeah and it's 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 this evolution from the self-help groups we see at the the support groups we see at the the start and where these people are now finding themselves again and as they they said it's like nobody has any status nobody has any sort of uh power or title in the fight yeah. in the fight club and they perfectly emphasize it when they say about like donny the guy who couldn't remember what color ink he orders at work and he it doesn't matter in fight club because he's for those brief moments he's the god when he paced the guy who works in the food court <laughs> <laughs> the fact that these guys can like never acknowledge this this outside of Fight Club, and we see it when the narrator bumps into each of these characters in their like individual workplaces, and they give them like the subtle nod of recognition, but they don't mm. mention it's sort of like where they've been. <laughs> and this allure of the secret society, I think, is so intoxicating. And you combine that with these mantras that Tyler is plying these members with this idea that you know we're children of this lost generation we've and i think this in particular appealed to like the america um, applied to like the american audiences where it's sort of like this idea where you'd like anyone can grow up to be the pre- president and yes i mean now it's obviously very obvious that anyone can grow up to be the president when you look who who's in charge at the moment so i think the same could be said about the british prime minister as well but <laughs> we digress um 
but yeah, these people like promise. Oh, it's like you're gonna be like grow up to be like rock stars and prime presidents and stuff, and instead you're viewed as being the lowest of society because you're the guys who like serve food and pump gas and stuff. But we're giving you your power back. Um, yeah, and that's that's like the initial appeal of of Fight Club, the fact that these men are tapping into these primal urges again they're reasserting themselves it's like yes, yes we're men we fight each other and <laughs> and in homoerotic situations fight club is for the people who who really feel that they like they're like the narrator they're everybody they're everyday joes who do an average job who do a menial job or whatnot who's kind of lost the value of life and fight club kind of gives them back that life that control that reason to fight back that uh, place to release all those frustrations and whatnot that you have. And what's really great about Fight Club is it gives our narrator the power that he becomes more, uh, more, I guess, more self-assured when he's at work. So he's willing to kind of butt heads with the boss more, point out things that he doesn't like, or, or just really, like act out in his own way oh yeah the fact he writes these little haikus and then emails them to everyone in the office <laughs> these little acts of defiance that uh that he has as he, he sort of recognizes more in him, himself and i think this is where we see when we see like the fight club the fact that when tyler starts giving them all the pranks to play um yeah. and their missions so they go out and they do little pranks such as their they're there, like, destroying aerials or the wiping VHS cassettes and mm-hmm. the putting up fake uh, posters saying that, you know, you can use engine oil on your lawn. You can recycle your pets. They replace uh, all the the cards in the airplane for, like, the health and safe, the safety protocols, um, which was a really great thing when they gave out the press kit for this. You actually got your own card. Uh, that uh, you see in the airplane sequence, and it shows like the uh, the grown up shoving his hand on the face on the uh, face of the child as he's pulling on their own mask and stuff. It's it's pretty twisted, but it's pretty funny at the same time. <laughs> but you know, I think I think where we where we start seeing the situation change is when the movie takes a turn in that sense that uh, the narrator starts realizing that. Tyler is taking a lot of the credit for building the Fight Club, being the person who's the person who created the Fight Club, and kind of never really mentioning him, and never giving him that spotlight, and doing a lot of things behind his back. Yeah, certainly, as we evolve from the Fight Club into Project Mayhem, and it becomes less about this underground sort of fighting um group and instead becomes about them forming this <laughs> this secret militia and as the narrator says it's sort of like why was tyler building an army only tyler knows so he doesn't even know why half these things are happening and it's this slow evolution of 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 these pranks it's sort of like you by getting on that sort of ground level and you sort of like keep pushing it because the norm is slowly being changed so you stop you don't really question it because it's been changed that slowly but it's all under the guise of oh we're doing these pranks we're striking back at society you know we're taking back our our power and the fact that they're being led by someone so charismatic as tyler i think it's only only makes it the more believable that these 
you know, blue collar Joes would, uh, these people who just sort of been, been so oppressed by the society we live in, uh, would choose to, to go along and do these things that they know are so wrong because they feel so empowered by this man. Yeah. And, and, you know, I think that Tyler, I think one of the biggest effects of Fight Club and one of the biggest effects of having this for the narrator is, is that really turning point for his character when we see, when he see him like beat himself up when, when the boss tries to fire him. And things end up working to his advantage. And it's a very Tyler kind of thing that you'd see Tyler doing it, but you never imagined a narrator to really break out in this in this kind of outwardly thing, right? And then he, he, he refers to it, I think, as mimicking that first fight that they had. And and I just thought it was so it was so entertaining that at that moment it was very entertaining to watch in all the weirdest reasons i guess yeah i mean the fight scene itself did win the best best fight scene at the mtv movie awards um so credits where we're norton for that one and i love the fact that it's it's got that James Bond sort of payoff to it. The fact that we have this horrific moment of self-violence where we're watching someone brutalize themselves, crawl across broken glass and clamber up his boss to basically frame him for beating him, <laughs> for apparently beating Edward Norton's character up in this in this office. And the payoff for it is, I'd like to thank the Academy. <laughs> when for his little performance, just think when you see him like going at the office with his like uh, computer and he's there whistling to himself and he's got blood streaming down his face and it's like, it's just a black comedy. This is so good. And as I said, I a lot of this may be just my whoops and humor, but I just so many moments in this film I just laughed so loud, just laughed out loud so many times in this film, and I think it's also the fact that it's so. It's got that schoolboy sort of mischievousness to it. You know you're not supposed to be rooting for these characters, but you do. Um, the same way that when Marla says something outlandish or crude, um, such as the, uh, I haven't been fucked like that since grade school, which is actually a line that was the change by the studio. The studio were balked at the original line was, um, I wish I want to have your abortion, and David Fincher said, I'll change it. But wherever I change it to, that's it. This will go to the line. So he changed it to, um, I haven't been fucked like that since grade school. And the studio were like, oh, that's so much worse. And he was like, well, we ain't changing it back because this is what you agreed. <laughs> um, and yeah, it's just a very warped mischievousness that along with uh, this sort of idea of rebellion and stuff. You, it, I mean, as I say, it's probably why it appealed to myself when I was in that sort of right frame where I was working in the call centre basically being told to go fuck myself every five minutes of the day to have something that says, you know let here, let's go and strike back and take back uh, control and and have this this rebellion, this this causes uh, anarchy. It's the very sort of themes that appeal to the you when you're a young angry man and perhaps when you're <laughs> at slightly uh, age when you should know better, it's still got that sort of mischievousness to it that still appeals. So, mm. but as I said, I was wondering how that would appeal to like yourself. I mean, these themes of anarchy, of rebellion, and stuff. I mean, how did they sort of sit with yourself? Were you able to sort of understand it, or did it seem like very sort of like a very um, juvenile sort of overreaction to a situation? Well, I mean, <laughs> I'm a normal person, you know. Nor normal situation, you wouldn't, 
you wouldn't think about things like that. But films are films and stories are about a release of your character and and finding difference. And there's a certain enjoyability to watching someone who can do that because I mean everyone working a job who doesn't want to tell their boss to f off every once in a while, right? <laughs> But, I mean, even in the most, you know, <laughs> even as people call me, at least I get called to be very nice all the time, there's that whole issue that there's this enjoyment of watching someone being able to do that. And obviously the whole rebellion and vandalism and all the things that Project Mayhem brings is a bit over. But at the same time, for a group of people who met because of Fight Club, it's not exactly hard to imagine because they enjoy beating the crap out of each other. <laughs> so if you think about it in the logic of the movie, it does make sense. So I didn't have a big issue with it. I actually thought most of it was pretty enjoyable, especially starting from that scene where he started beating himself up. And then and then they were sent on pretty much homework assignments on these little missions of vandalism and stuff like that, it became very interesting to watch where these characters were going to go because you know that things are going to keep going their way. We obviously talked about the club itself and the evolution of that. Now, what I want to obviously talk about here is the relationship side because obviously we have a very, dare we say, homoerotic relationship between the narrator and Tyler Durden. The fact that these two have such a, a close bond and at the same time often shown in such a homoerotic light. I mean, obviously Edward Norton's character's got a gun battle between his teeth. The Brad Pitt's questions whether they actually need another woman in their lives. And the fact that Mala Singer's obviously seen as this intrusion uh, in their life. The fact that Tyler doesn't want her around. Uh, the fact he constantly tells uh, the narrator to get rid of her. Um, putting the narrator in this position as he describes that he's basically his eight-year-old self passing notes back and forth between his parents who <laughs> the relationship in many ways could be uh, seen seen as being uh being regards to but i was uh, interested how you saw the relationship because it's not just really it goes a lot deeper than just being a friendship they have a certain bond that goes a lot deeper and certainly the trust the fact that Tyler's constantly able to push the narrator not only to living essentially in a squat with him but also to engage in chemical enlightenment when he gives him a chemical burn uh, with the fun experiments with lie yeah. so it's very interesting to see how you would saw their relationship I mean their relationship is very I don't know if you'd call it romantic or if you'd call it just a, a really solid bromance uh but you definitely have a connection there where, like, the narrator is feeding off of the character of Tyler Durden. Um, he he kind of motivates him to be more than his normal self. But at the same time, it kind of challenges his character a lot. If you think about one of the ending conversations that they have, it feels like, because he refers to it as being dumped by Tyler when he leaves. So you think about it this way, and in reality, the narrator's the narrator has dependence on Tyler. Whether Tyler reciprocates it is different, obviously. Hmm. But I feel like it's definitely escalated further than a friendship. But what to define it exactly as, I'm not exactly sure. Okay. 
because I mean we obviously have this we even have like this moment of jealousy between the narrator uh, when we have the arrival of Angel Face played by uh, Jared Leno yeah. The uh, young blonde uh, who uh, turns up and seems to be taking Tyler's af- affections away from the narrator so much so that he takes the first opportunity he can just to batter the hell out of him in one of the most brutal scenes of the film where we see basically uh, him get his face decimated. Yeah. Um, well beyond the point where it even shocks these people who are so hardened to the violence that they see about themselves. Um, and... Fincher shoots it in such a it shoots it in such a almost voyeuristic way the fact that the sound is stripped away so we're just basically hearing meat on meat sounds of slap and fuds um, as uh, the narrator basically explains he wanted to destroy something beautiful and at the same time uh, I'm just sure it's this scene or another where he basically says it's like this outpouring of frustration like uh, for every panda that wouldn't fuck to save its own species which mm. I think is still a great line that's what he adds in this all of interesting elements the fact that he has these moments of jealousy the fact that if anyone tries to interfere with his relationship be it Marla be it Angel Face he's prone to these sort of bouts of jealousy and, and resentment to these people I'm not sure if it's I don't know if I I consider it like you know it is jealousy for sure but at the same time, I feel like it's just that these characters that come in strip away that importance that is in the life that he feels is just him and Tyler. And these people walking in kind of pull the attention away. So he becomes useless again. He's not um, like the center. The attention is not on him as much anymore. And I think that a, a lot of his character is about because everybody seems to view him as a pretty invisible type of person in life and unimportant in person in life and 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 that sort of character that Tyler gives him that life so when the attention is taken away where Tyler is say spending a lot of time with Marla in bed and <laughs> or or going on these vandalism acts with uh with with Angel Face and having these secrets about Project Mayhem that he doesn't know about. He feels left out. And is it really because of... I think it's more the jealousy of of that he's not feeling important anymore. That more... And being left out more than the fact that it's... Is it Tyler that does it? Maybe. It's because Tyler gives him that identity. Gives him that, that person that he... Just, I don't know. Kind of opens him up a little bit more than, than the person he was before. I have to say that it's um, certainly Brad Pitt spends certainly a lot of time with in various states of undress, which uh, <laughs> certainly did wonders to appeal it to the gay crowd. And who it's actually Brad Pitt credits in the commentary for the success of the film getting a revival of interest. The fact that it was so picked up by <laughs> by the uh, gay moviegoers who actually very much appreciated the fact that Brad Pitt spends a lot of time, uh, as I said, uh, whether it's him sitting shirtless in a bath or completely naked bar a pair of rubber yellow gloves. There's a lot to appreciate of uh, Brad Pitt in his prime, for, to say the least. So, Brad Pitt always likes to show off his body at some point or another. So it's not really like, it's not really like the shining part of the movie, but it gives him a lot of credit. And, and in our further viewing, I'm going to, I'm going to talk about another movie that does that really, really well. Um, but yeah, 
But yeah, I mean, Brad Pitt is in general he's a charming person, shirt on or shirt off. So I, <laughs> it 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 does add to his character because he he is. I think that that also adds on to the wonder of casting Brad Pitt is that he's so really like he is a really really handsome guy and he has a great body and and that sort of, and 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 it gives him so much of that charming hot body kind of hot guy type of thing right <laughs> but at the same time he's it, it also emphasizes the difference between him and edward norton because edward norton's not that edward norton's like the skinny dude you know <laughs> <laughs> So he's it, a little more it, gangly. <laughs> yeah, he is. So the everything here, that's, that's why I think the casting is so important for this, is it really shows the importance of the film the whole way that makes the most, at least the most interesting to me, is the contrast between these two characters. And, and just how these two characters eventually, you see them, Edward Norton's character growing, but at the same time, Tyler's character, like Brad Pitt's Tyler, is moving away as well to something a lot more dangerous. So even as as the narrator is crossing certain boundaries that he wouldn't have before, Tyler is taking it always a step further. Yeah, and I think I think again, this is the the what's so great about casting Brad Pitt in this role because Tyler Durden is this supposed to be this embodiment of of who the narrator really wants to be yeah. and the fact he's got this sort of boyish charm to him as well and the fact I think it was only further backed up by the fact that at the same time this film's coming out Brad Pitt's appearing on Jackass and doing skits with the Jackass guys and it sort of like just really sort of played into this persona of who Brad Pitt was because it was really through Seven that we he went from being just the pretty boy actor to being the sort of pretty boy actor that guys could watch and like as well. Because, And I think Leonardo DiCaprio took a lot longer to find that because DiCaprio for a while was stuck in that rut of doing the, you know, the Titanic and the beach where you know he was just a pretty boy. And it was sort of later, much later when he was doing things like you know Shutter Island and Wolf of Wall Street that finally he became you know the pretty boy who guys can enjoy watching as well. So it's great. I would say I always like to say I always really like the the pit years post seven. I always found those to be the most enjoyable. Everything prior to that was just too much of like, oh, look at this pretty boy when he's like doing Meet Joe Black and Legends of the Fall and all that sort of nonsense. <laughs> um, and um, I think with as I said, when you're playing a character of uh, like Tyler Durden, I think it's just going to open up this whole other audience because they're going to so associate you as being this character, and they see you, they be this whole group of people who see you as being, you know, being this Tyler Durden sort of character. So I think it sort of really opened him up to a lot more roles, even though at the time it didn't seem it would because of it being such a, a failure, but uh, certainly it's a film that everyone involved with is very proud of. Uh, Chuck Palahniuk was very invested in the film, and you hear that on his commentary track as well, the fact that he talks about how for the premiere that they were all going to like shave their heads like the space monkeys, and they all had like the fake chemical uh, burn kisses on the hand that they were all going to show <laughs> up with, and like uh, Fincher and Edward Norton and Brad Pitt and him were all just going to turn up in like a group of space monkeys at the premiere and stuff. So, so let's get into some spoilers here. Obviously, I think everyone knows the end of this film, but you know we'll just put the spoiler in there in case you haven't. In case you're like Kim and just haven't managed to get around to it until there's a recording for it. 
I'm not going to judge people. People watch what they want. I mean, there's a lot of stuff out there now. It's not I get like... judged a lot, so you know, I know I can feel whoever hasn't seen it. So. And now you can just now people want to judge you. You can just say, you know, come come to my fight club, then we'll solve this. You got your ideas now of how to solve these issues, or as I like to call Fight Club, the how Kim suitors battle it out. <laughs> just what we have to deal with outside the office on a weekly basis we just pull more down the basement and say sort it out between yourselves guys obviously when we find out that the big twist here that uh tyler is not actually a person but it's edward norton's invisible imaginary friend he's just obviously unlike other people he's just had the balls to go with it as tyler explains so when we have the you know the seats to the upright position to quote the narrator uh moment how did you find that because obviously twists are something that Fincher likes to do but at the same time he doesn't make it the base of his career like unlike uh, the likes of M. Night Shanahan and I think to that extent I think that's why Fincher's got more longevity and more creativity in his career uh, but certainly I thought this was uh, it's certainly a good twist I mean obviously I had the pre-warning because I read the book going into it so it probably wasn't as shocking as it was to moviegoers yeah well I mean like I said, when I went to this movie, I was pretty not knowledgeable about anything about it. So, oh good, I think so you I, ha- I think, I think, I think I had, I think I had an idea. Like I think I had heard about the twist somewhere. When it happened, I felt like I had seen it, but then I didn't. So I mean, it was the twist is really good. I mean, it it kind of made everything ended up making sense. Um, and there was yeah. kind of like the desire to kind of go back and re- look at all these scenes that were happening and how they were technically happen- happening, right? Um, in the past, obviously. And it's a very, I guess, you, I, I guess the best way to describe this would be a very Dr. Jekyll, Mr. Hyde moment, right? Between the yeah. two characters. Um, which, which, is, which is great because that's that's. I wonder if that's why Edward Norton got hired for Bruce Banner. (laughs) Um, (laughs) But yeah, no, I mean, it's really great because after this moment is revealed, we start realizing in that final, you know, the big finale to, 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 you know, to, to the end of the movie, all that way, we start seeing the whole struggle he has with this character and the interaction that he has with them. And then we see it through, I, I love the parking lot when we're, we see like in the parking garage and then we see like the security camera and you just watch this guy <laughs> going back and forth and falling or whatever. And you see this all in, in just, this is one person doing all this stuff. And it is the wildest moments because it kind of explains how everything before, if you thought was unfeasible about how this wouldn't have made sense, all this ever makes sense now, even at a technical level. <laughs> Yeah, I I love, the, I love the fact that even his this person he's created for himself, um, this imaginary friend admonishes his own behavior. Just as the fact is like, oh, you're now shooting a gun at your imaginary friend next to a truck full of nitroglycerin. Yeah, <laughs> it's like look at you running around in your underwear. Look at a crazy person. <laughs> Just the fact that he's in his own head. The fact he can be admonished by his own imaginary friend. It's whereas normally the imaginary friend just keeps pushing and pushing when we've seen this sort of character before. There's never any sort of consequence. It just like 
the imaginary friend will just constantly push the character till it reaches some sort of uh, grisly sort of climax, which causes them to snap out of it. Where we, when it comes to the case of Tyler, Tyler's basically like you know, still, to play, still this sort of self-aware creation. Um, even though it's basically the narrator sort of fighting against himself for the, the second time in this film. Um, but I certainly love it when you go back and you see all the sort of sequences and it shows how it all sort of how it all sort of actually played out. I think mm-hmm. that's really sort of interesting. And the fact that when you watch the film again and you look at these sequences, the fact that these scenes are being played um, very similar to to Shutter Island, the same way that you go back and knowing the secret and how you view these scenes sort of very differently, and you can see these scenes playing out and how characters react and how. In particular, uh, the narrator and Tyler Durden sort of interact with each other. Um, it sort of fits perfectly within this endgame. It's not sort of... It doesn't ever feel like something he just sort of pulled out of his... Uh, out of the air, sort of like, oh, I need an ending. Uh, this is it. It all sort of... <laughs> the clues have always been there. We just didn't know what we were looking for. You know, and, and that that really is... That really is a nod to Fincher being a really great director and being able to frame these shots and and pull off how to execute this through cinematography and everything. That all these scenes make sense even after the big reveal is done. If you go back to watch it, you'll see all these little details and you'll see all these little things that happen and and all the pieces really fit back together. Just looking at this film, I think it's absolute fascinating piece of cinema um in a very exciting year for cinema on a whole i think there's so many elements about this film that just stand up to constant rewatching. there's little details you pick out such as the little flashes of tyler that appear throughout the film and certainly the big payoff at the end where as uh brad pitt says in the commentary mr fincher likes to make appearance in all his films <laughs> I think, as I say, it's just a film that just stands up to. I've seen it numerous times before, and it just never seems to lose its sort of charm and appeal to myself. I don't, um, as I said, I just, I just really, really enjoy it. So, um, but yeah, is there anything else that you sort of want to? Any final thoughts on this one? No, I think I'm good. Okay. Um, further viewing, then, if you like Fight Club, what do you pair with it? This is going to be an interesting one. <laughs> interesting one. Okay, I'm going to go with one that we've... Uh, I think at, at a certain point in the... I have three further viewings. So the first one was... Okay. I was watching this movie and I felt like... When the, we were going through that Project Mayhem and all those things going on... It reminded me a lot of shopping. Uh, oh, good choice. Yeah, so shopping... Uh, Paul W.S. Anderson... Uh, we did yep. that as our first episode of Movies and Tea. First ever episode. Um, so that's something that you can all go back and check. So I'm not going to go too deep in it. Um, that's, you know, Paul W.S. Anderson's debut film. And obviously it's not quite as refined as this one. But it has that rebellion kind of uh, theme to it. Uh, which works pretty well. Uh, second one that I'm going to go with is the one that I had mentioned before that I kind of left on a cliffhanger and didn't talk about, uh, is very similar to this one. And it was last year's, uh, Daniel isn't real, which is currently on, which was recently launched on shutter. Uh, 
Okay. Um, yeah, with uh, our second generation, two second generation leads of big, bigger actors, right? Uh, it's Arnold Schwarzenegger's son, Patrick Schwarzenegger, which plays a character very similar to Brad Pitt's character in Fight Club. And uh, it's pretty much right, but this one is not a secret. We know right away that he is an imaginary friend. <laughs> so da- hmm. Daniel is an imaginary friend that this character played by uh, Miles Robbins, uh, Tim Robinson, son, is, is, is playing in this movie. And this is a phenomenal movie. It's one of my favorite movies of 2019, made by Spectre Vision. So it's it, you know, published by Spectre Vision, I guess. And then it was, it, it's really, it's, it really embodies that whole imaginary friend thing in more of a psychedelic horror thriller style. Um, so this one would actually pair perfectly with um, Fight Club, in my opinion. And then uh, I don't know if this movie, that third movie that I'm talking about, is going to is is widely released because I saw it at a film festival and then I never heard about it again. It's called Brockland. It's a Danish movie. Okay. Uh, yeah, it's a Danish movie, and um, I saw it in, in, in a festival back then, and, and the English title is Sticks and Stones. And what's really great about Brockland is it's a 2018 Danish movie about two boys uh, who is very similar to the characters here, who kind of... There's that whole character of... One character is kind of like a Brad Pitt character where they're pushing the other character to break out of that safety zone that they're in. And it builds their friendship when they do these kind of, uh, these acts together, together as like a team. Uh, there's a really strong sense of, I don't know, just uh, friendship and uh, how far they're, they're, it's a very deep movie about, about like boyish things that go on. <laughs> so yeah, uh, those are my three further viewing picks. What are yours? Um, we've got a couple here, and um, someone just sort of come to me. First off, off the bat, I would say American History X, just for Edward Norton's powerhouse performance. And again, it's that uh, that cult of uh, a belonging. It obviously sees uh, Edward Norton playing a neo-Nazi. Um, and it explores, obviously, this idea of, uh, of, of, of hate, and we see this character go from, obviously, being the leader of a neo, neo-Nazi skinhead group um and seeing how he finds redemption and change of belief as uh through a spell in prison um really absolute powerhouse performance and the fact it's shot in black and white by tony k mm-hmm. the long-serving resident of uh filmmaker jail it's um tony k is really one of those phenomenal filmmakers and while the studio and edward norton basically had to wrestle the film from his hands and re-edit it to the extent that he was wanting to be have his name taken off the the film, but I think and this is one of the few occasions where they made the right call and it turned out to be in this absolute masterpiece of a film, uh, certainly showing a very intense side to Edward Norton's character and sort of uh, was a lot more superior to uh, someone we mentioned already, uh, Russell Crowe, who obviously stored in the very similar romper stomper. Um, Next one I'm going to suggest you check out is uh, from 2002. It's the Korean film H, uh, in which a serial killer named Shin Hyun 
gives himself up to the police confessing to a series of particularly horrible murders. Um, yet, while he's in prison and awaiting the sentence for his crimes, the killings continue. Um, this is a film which uh, films to, builds to a really interesting climax, and I think it's uh, got some interesting ideas that are in many ways similar to this film in terms of like what the twist is but it's not the same before you start thinking that um next i would also say uh check out shutter island very similar in many ways to a film that really sort of benefits when you go back and rewatch it and you notice all the little clues and things that uh you perhaps don't miss on the first time and uh, the final one being Daz experiment uh, which is one of a few films based on the stanfield um experiment where members of the public were assigned roles of being either guards or prisoners and uh, it sort of looked at the effects of conformity and this film was remade uh, with Forrest Whitaker and Ed, uh, Adam Brody um, as uh, the experiment but um, I would recommend checking out the German version Das Experiment it's not particularly uh, fun viewing but it is um, it is a really interesting sort of a lore look at the allure of sort of power and uh, how power corrupts in particular um now because we're obviously being such a fan of chuck planet as well i recommend you check out the book for fight club and uh also recommend checking out a couple of his other books if you like horror check out haunted which is basically a collection of short stories as uh he tries to play one up himself with him and trying to outgross himself. Um, well, on the social satire side of things, I'd recommend definitely checking out either Survivor or Invisible Monsters as well. So that would be my fair viewing. And definitely the book of Fight Club is well worth checking out. Even if you've seen the film, it's a great introduction to the works of Planet um, and one worth checking out there. So that would be my recommendations there. Mm. Um, but... Yes, thank you again for listening. And uh, as always, you uh, if you could hit the like and the subscribe button, it really does help us out. And maybe leave us a review. And uh, in the meantime, you can also check out our full archive of episodes, which is moviesandtpodcast.wordpress.com. Uh, not only for this season, but our previous seasons as well, looking at where we looked at Paul Darius Sanson, Guillermo del Toro, Sofia Coppola, and more recently, Ang Lee. And uh, as well as that, you can also check out other bits of fun writing. We've got our Shark Week episodes and uh, our After Hours specials on there as well. But, um, Kim, where do we go next? Yeah, we're moving forward to 2002, where we go and watch Panic Room. (laughs) Yes, Panic Room. Um, A fun little claustrophobic thriller. Um, Again, this time we're moving to the upper side of New York this time and we get to see Jodie Foster um, hanging out with a young what's, who's Stewart. the chick from Twilight Kristen, Kristen a very young Kristen Stewart with a questionable haircut and we also get to see the return of Jared Leto with even more questionable hair uh, all that uh, obviously come on the next episode but uh, thank you as always for listening, thank you to my co-host Kim and uh, we'll be back next time to talk about Panic Room till then, good night. 